You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the broadcaster, writer and script editor, Emma Freud. She is something of a natural media chameleon. She began her career as a TV and radio presenter and has since written columns and articles for publications such as The Telegraph, Tatler and The Guardian. She is the director of Red Nose Day for the charity Comic Relief, which has raised well over £1 billion in its 33 years of existence. She's also helped create some of the world's best-loved romantic comedies, script editing and co-producing films such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill and About Time, with her partner of 28 years, the writer and director Richard Curtis. Oh, I love it. I don't see anything wrong with it. But imagine going out with Richard Curtis for 27 years and not being a romantic or not enjoying the romantic side Finding of it a bit cringy. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, uh, he's not very romantic. He writes really? romantic, but he doesn't... He's, he's not... We never got married... I did propose to him once. Oh, I had heard he'd proposed to you a number of times. He's proposed to me lots of times. I only did it once and it went very badly. When was that? Um, it was about a year after we began going out together and there happened to be a February the 29th. Of course, and that's the when women can propose on a leap year, yeah. Yeah, it's just... you. It's funny, I grew up my whole life saying that. You know, February the 29th when you... And just now, 2018, the idea that women are only allowed to propose one every four years, other than that, it's the man's job, is so ridiculous. I know. I can't even say the story anymore, but I will. So I was doing a radio show on that day. So I would have been 29, 30 or something. And it was a Radio 4 show with Ned Sharon, and he was the host. He's before your time. And he said to me, so it's 29th of February, are you going to be proposing to anybody today? And I went, yes, I am. And he went, oh, goodness me, Richard's a lucky man. Well, we'll find out what he says, what what his reply is in the pub after the show. So we did the show, and then we went to the pub, which we always did, and Richard came in. It was a morning show. Richard came in and um, said, oh, hi, everyone, really, really great show. I loved every minute of it. Fantastic monologue, Ned, and that interview was really, really great. Uh, you know, and sat down. And everybody <laughs> was looking at him in a kind of, yes. And he didn't say anything, and I went, scarlet. And it was just, and it was the, it was awful. It was just that a sounds tr- real life tragedy mm. moment where the boyfriend was completely ignoring the only question that anybody on that day wanted answering in that pub. And after about 10 minutes of sitting there in complete kind of mortification, he turned to me and said, how was the show? I slept through it. Was it all right? Oh, thank God. And he'd just been lying. So we left instantly and went to the, the park, to Regent's Park, and I went down on one knee and asked him, <gasps> Emma! Yeah, I know. I wasn't going, you know, just because he was dozy, I wasn't going to let Aww. it lie. So I said, will you marry me? And he said, no. <laughs> Why did he <laughs> say no? no better. Why did he say no? <laughs> he said, can I think about it? And I went, yeah. Oh, that's gutting. That's worse than no, I think. Can I think about it? And a minute later, I said, okay, you've thought about it. Now what? And he went, no, no, no. I mean, can I have a year? And I went, don't be, come come on. So we settled on six months. And six months later, I put on a jacket of his because uh, I was cold. Mm. We are in Italy. And I put my hands in the pocket and there was a little box. <gasps> and so I tried to give my best side and look very pretty and purse my lips a lot, <laughs> knowing that something was imminent. And nothing was imminent. And then about a day later, he said, look, I don't want to get married, but can we be not married for the rest of our lives? Oh, that's and here's a ring, which then broke, which is a bit sad. Uh, and your fi- your ring finger's ringless, I've noticed. Yes, it, the ring broke. <laughs> I still have it, I just don't wear it. Uh, so we've been not married now for 28 years. And the first time I met you, in the con- the first conversation we had, you referred to your boyfriend. Mm. And is that something you still, I was like, has her and Richard broken up? <laughs> and you said it. Do you still call him your boyfriend? Well, what else would I call him? Oh, there's that word that everyone likes. I hate that word. Yeah. The P word. Mm. It's revolting. A bit law firmy, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Or it's like, I'm gay and I don't want to say it out loud. It's mm. not It's not a good, it's not a helpful word. So if there was a better word, I'd use it. I know it's a bit stupid to be 56 and calling him my boyfriend. I think it's kind of cool. I like it. I don't think my kids think it's very cool. <laughs> 
But it's quite funny because now I'm so old. If I say my boyfriend, people just assume that I've split up from my husband. And yeah, that's, that's what yeah. I thought when I first. And I was oh, like, yeah. no, that can't be true. No, he's, yeah, maybe I should call him my long-term boyfriend. That would be really easy to say, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he did propose to me, though. There was a fantastic moment when it was one Sunday morning and I was looking at Hello magazine, as was my want. And there was a picture of Kate Moss pregnant mm. with her baby by Jefferson Hack. Mm. And Richard saw it and said, oh, Kate Moss is having a baby. Oh, I suppose we could get married then. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this, the guy who wrote Love Actually, that's, that's pretty lame as, <laughs> as, as proposals go. Because he, she was finally out of yeah. the, the running. Yeah. Wasn't it wasn't his finest hour. <laughs> I grew up between London and Suffolk, and I still live between London and Suffolk. And that's you're by the sea there, aren't you? Yeah, we're yeah. right on the seaside. It's lovely. And my dad grew up there in a little village, um, right on the coast. And I grew up there, and now my kids are growing up there. And it's very, very sweet and very small, and quite 1950s in feel. You know, it's all that sort of thing, and I love it. And in our village, we it's a cul-de-sac village, and it ends in the beach, so it's quite safe. And from the age of minute, we were just left to roam free. Lovely. And so it was very gentle and very safe and very sweet. And there was a big gang of kids in the village who were all given this sort of liberty. So there are about 30 of us, I guess. And we used to play, um, you know, little running games and fooling around games were little. And then when we all got, because we were all roughly the same age, to about 11 or 12, we began playing Postman's Knock and then True Dare, Double Dare, Love Kiss Promise and then Run, Catch, Kiss. And then we developed this game, which was like, let's cut out the game element mm. and let's just go for the only reason that any of us are here and play a game called Seven Minutes in Heaven. Do you know this game? No, but was it featured in one of your film in one of the films? We might there might have been a mention of it. Rich has always been slightly obsessed with the idea of it. Yes, yes, no, tell me. So Seven Minutes in Heaven involves all the boys going into one room and all the girls going into another and all the boys choosing a girl and then going with the girl into we had an old hay barn there, going into the hay and having seven minutes in heaven. And then after seven minutes, whoever hadn't been chosen, because there's always someone, mm. normally my cousin Charlotte, mm. they would have to time it and they go, Seven minutes is up, which is the worst words you can hear and then everyone would come out of the hay and then the girls would all choose one of the boys and go back into the hay with a different boy and so we would play this for two or three hours every night for two or three years and how old were you when you were doing that sort of 12 to 15 blimey that's quite young to be doing that and was it just a bit of snogging it at 12 it was snogging by 15 it was more developed wow very dark barn but it did mean that over those years, I basically snogged everyone in Suffolk. <laughs> uh, and it was, there was, the weird thing about it was there was no jealousy. There was no competition. There yeah. was no issue. It was just totally understood that that was what we were going to do. And we were going to do it for hours. And then we were going to do it again tomorrow. And by the end of the week, there would have been 20 different boys who you'd put your tongue in their mouth. It's because it is, when when spoken about baldly, it is sort of orgiastic. But it also... Gosh, it so wasn't, though. It, but, it's, but what you're saying is that it's, I, it sounds like it was just very non-judgmental and free and lovely. Yeah, it was very straightforward and it was just, you know, how it worked. It was just what it was. It didn't have any any overtones. It didn't lead to anything. Yeah. It didn't get weird. It was sort of, I imagine, a bit like what they would have done 100 years ago. There was nothing modern or or challenging about it. It was just, this is how we all learn to snog. Yeah. And by the end of it, honestly, I'm like the best snogger ever. <laughs> I really am. You can see, it's like it's like a PhD <laughs> in kissing. And There's I only it. one way to find out, Emma, which will I'm be not the end it. of this podcast. <laughs> And did your parents know about yeah, it? Yeah, I they think did. so. I don't really know. We didn't ask. But it was, you know, it was just, there, w- there was very little to report. It, it sounds weird, doesn't it? No, I used to snog. There was a girl that I was close with and we used to go on sort of family holidays to the seaside. And we would go and find a little cave on the beach quite often and just snog each other. But it was not... Um, sexual and it was not it's explorative it, it was explorative. i remember us teaching each other mm. 
That's what it was. I love that. And I think we felt like the biggest fear, I was at an all-girls school, and the biggest fear was snogging a boy and him saying to you, you're doing it wrong. That was what my big fear was. So I think there was felt something that quite safe about who is this person who I've known since I was a kid, who's my mate, who's a safe place to try. Yeah. I taught Matthew, my brother. Did you? Yeah, because he was a couple of years younger than me. So I was... I was experienced and he mm. wasn't. And first I taught him on the back of my hand mm. and then I taught him using the mirror in our bathroom. So you do it like this. I never did it on him. So I just said, watch, this is how you do it. This is what you do. And he really watched. I think he might have taken notes. <laughs> how generous of you as a sister, Thank I Thank you, think. yes. So did your prolific snogging, did that continue into your 20s? No, I only ever had three boyfriends. Really? Yeah, rather lame. I got, I suppose, all that out the way or something, I don't know. But the first boyfriend I went out with at the age of 17, I was with for five years. And my second boyfriend I was with for six years. And my third boyfriend I've been with for 28 years. Would you describe yourself as someone who's been lucky in love? Are you in touch with your exes? Did How did that kind of... Did you ever have big, big disasters, big heartache? Yes, they were very intense relationships. Um, I'm not really in touch with them, although, you know, occasionally bump into them. I think in Finding Richard, I think I might be the luckiest person in the entire world. Mm. I mean, it gets no better. It really gets no better. He's just the best human I've ever met. And if you were to have, in Suffolk, in between your seven minutes in heaven, have written down the boy that you would like to end up with and have children with and have a future with, would it have been, would you have written down a man like Richard? I would never, ever have dreamed that someone like Richard would want to go out with someone like me. Why do you say that? <laughs> He's amazing. I feel I got the jackpot. I feel I got the triple jackpot. I mean, there's just... He's incredible. And I think, I, I mean, when I was younger, the idea that I would have a boyfriend who not only began a charity that has raised a billion pounds, but has written brilliant, funny, thoughtful, wonderful things and, you know, is a UN ambassador. I mean, honestly, I thought I would end up with Giles Dunlop and I would have been really happy with that. He was from our village. <laughs> I was like, is Giles Dunlop a celebrity <laughs> I should know? <laughs> So I'm going to do a quick fire round now. Okay. About all things love. What's the most romantic song in the world? Oh, uh, don't say quick fire because I've okay, got about eight is... answers to this question. Okay, I'll give you three at one, two and three. We can call this a medium speed round. Okay. Um, when I first met Richard, he made me a mixtape. We weren't going out together. It was quite a long courtship, like two years. But he gave me a mixtape, which doesn't mean what mixtape means now. It means a tape that you record on a cassette player. Yeah. You know, by pressing play and record. So quite labour intensive. Very labour yeah. intensive. And a real act of love. And he gave it to me in a kind of, oh, yeah, here's just some songs here that I just thought you would quite like. Is it quite interesting? And one of them was the Waterboys song, A Man Is In Love. Now, he claims that it was nothing to do with me or anything. But for me, that was like, OK, I'm in here. Really? This is going to work. I mean, it was another year till we kissed. Mm. But that gave me hope. Mm. So that song, if mm. I ever hear it, it makes me go. Um, the song I lost my virginity to. What's that? Well, uh, I wish it were another one. I wish it hadn't been this. I was almost 18 and I was at home and I think my parents were downstairs. So we had to have the radio on very loudly. <laughs> like you do. And unfortunately, at the moment that I, you know, waited 18 years for the song that happened to be playing on Capital Radio was If You Like Pina Coladas. Oh, my God. It's not good, is it? <laughs> um, so, unfortunately, that has great connotations to me. What do you... When you hear it now, do you just think of the moment you I became cringe. a woman? <laughs> I cringe. <laughs> You're going to die when I tell you what my one was. What was it? It was a week before my 18th birthday and it was Maggie May by Rod Stewart. You see, I wish mine had been a Rod Stewart song. There's a lot of integrity in that song. I like that song-ish. It's better than the Pina Colada song, Dolly. (laughs) My third would be from the last movie that 
we made, which was called About Time, which is my favourite of all the films. Have you seen it? I love that Oh, film. thank I love it too. All four of my children are in it. Are they? Yeah, I'm very proud of that. Oh. Uh, crowbarred them in. <laughs> Literally had to sleep with the director in order to make that happen. And were they like, Mum, <laughs> no, I don't want to be in this huge hit film that everyone's going to love. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. Well, my, my, my little boy, Charlie, who was then eight, we cast as the little... Do you remember at the end of the film... Bill Nye goes for a walk on the beach with oh. Donald Gleeson when he was eight. Even you saying that, my eyes welled. It's it's oh. a very moving moment. It's a good scene. And there's a little red-headed boy on the beach. And the little red-headed boy is my little Charlie. Oh. But in order for him to do that, we had to dye his hair red. And oh. there was a lot of, I'm not having my hair dyed. <laughs> you are. I'm not. You are. I Can't I wear a wig? No, it won't be the same. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Yes, you do. So there was a bit of that going on there. <laughs> but he's quite pleased now. Yeah, of course. Um, but in that film, there was a song by Ben Folds called The Luckiest. Oh, that's the last song on yeah. the, fil- the film, and isn't it? That, for me, is the most the most romantic. Because the, the message at that point in the film is the lead guy, Donald Gleeson, looking at Rachel McAdams and just going, it's not the grand gestures, it's not the big moments, it's just the fact that you snuggle into your pillow in the mornings when you don't want to get out of bed. It's the way that you brush your teeth and the spittle fills mm. into the sink. It's mm. just the absolute everydayness of being with someone that is the stuff of life. Mm. It's And that's the bit to be revered. That's the bit that if you only had a day left to live, you wouldn't say, to put me on an airplane and give me lunch at the Eiffel Tower. You'd say, let me just mm. go for a walk, eat, eat in a cafe and look at you asleep in your bed. And that's what that song says. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's why... um, I get really moved by that film. I think that's why... (laughs) Oh, I love this song. You're actually crying. Yeah. Oh, thanks. It's that last montage I always find really moving. (laughs) Oh, babe. Yes, me too. He he began with that, with the end. The, The entire film was just structured for that final point because it's everyone in life you cut to everyone in life kind of just trying to find the joy what yeah. are you doing to me <laughs> it's the me. first time i've cried on this podcast is it yeah it's because i'm a freud it's in my jeans <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah that's i think it's very and actually i think the irony is is that cynics will say about films like the films that you rich make is that it tells stories of love that are unrealistic or unattainable but actually i've never found that in those films and I think that's what's so poignant about that parting message of about time is that as you said it's not about the trip to Paris or 300 roses in a in an office being delivered it's it's about these kind of quotidian and domestic and small and kind and generous moments of, of familiarity which as you said actually make up the fabric of Real a life. life spent together that's exactly what the film was meant to be about. And, you know, a lot of it stems from a really profound moment that we had when I was pregnant with Scarlett and my first child. So 22 years ago. And we were in America and he'd been nominated for an Oscar for our first film, Four Weddings and a Funeral, the first film we made together. And... Uh, we went to the Oscars and he didn't win, which we absolutely knew we wouldn't because we we're up against Pulp Fiction, mm. which he'd voted for as well. <laughs> <laughs> the best screenplay because it's the greatest work of art. And um, but we had this great night where we went, knowing he wouldn't win, didn't win. He didn't have to make a speech, completely happy. Went to a party afterwards, you know, the whole Oscars thing, mm. the absolute pinnacle of your career. I was 33, he was 38. Very exciting. Yeah. And at three o'clock in the morning, we got back to our hotel room and I said, what did you think? And he said, it's good. I mean, it wasn't as good as when we go and have supper with Piers and Paula, mm. his best friends, mm. but it was, it was good. Mm. And uh, it was such a big moment because mm. it really was that thing, which as a writer, and he'd been a writer since he was 15, so he'd waited, you know, 20 something years for that moment. Mm. And he'd got the Oscar nomination and getting the nomination to us was absolutely every bit actually as good as getting the Oscar because you get to you get flown out to America and you get to go and you know 
You get to wear the frock. You get to wear the frock. You don't have to make the speech and you have all the part and all the fun. And it was fun, but it wasn't that much fun. Yeah. And really going around to Clapham with his best friends that he went to school with and just laughing about the same things we've laughed about for yeah. a decade. And, you know, seeing, eating the same slightly disgusting risotto um, and <laughs> teasing Paula about how disgusting it was mm. and drinking a bottle of wine and just mm. fooling around is so much more fun than going to the Oscars. Mm. And it was a real moment of going, OK, we need to reevaluate an awful lot of things right now. Because if this is the stuff of life, if this is the real stuff of life, then then we need to rethink everything else that's going on. And yeah. in a way, that thought led to what the the final sequence of About Time. Mm. It's the little things. Yeah. It, we're really, really bad at quick fire rounds. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was me. Um, so my next quick sort of fire. slow fire is... Um, what do you think? Do you have a line from a song that you think is the most romantic line of a song? I mean, to some extent, uh, when you ask me that question, my my brain does go to David Cassidy. Is that wrong? No, not at all. So I'm just a daydreamer. Because because to me, the the feeling of that is absolutely the feeling of being 13 and being deeply, deeply in love with someone who I'm never going to meet mm. and the bliss of the unattainable, the, the sort of safety, the safety of knowing that this is a boy on the wall who you're never going to have to meet and disappoint, who is never going to look and go, but you're quite fat and ugly. Yeah, that's the free, that's the pure freedom of it's fantasy. It's heaven, it. isn't it? Because you can imagine how they feel about you and how they feel yeah. about you is they are blown away <laughs> oh i mean this 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 was the plan i'm i'm there at, i'm there at his concert i'm in the front row i never went to his concert i just had a picture of him on my wall and i didn't even have any record i didn't think i had a record player but if his song came on the radio then you know i was there um i was in the front row of his concert and he would look at me from the stage and he would see me and he would do a little signal to his roadie who meaning is her that's the one. And at the end of the concert, as I was filing out, the roadie would come and find me and go, Mr. Cassidy would like to see you now. And I would be taken, age 13, into his dressing room and we would sit down and he would talk to me and he would realise that we were meant to be together. Obviously. And yeah. he would ask me to wait for him because he was quite gentlemanly. And when I was 18, he would come back and get me. It, oh, like Christopher that's Presley. nice. Yeah, I know. That's lovely. And that's the last guest that I had on set, the comedian Sarah Pascoe. She told a story about how she was obsessed with Take That and her fantasy was was the opposite of that in that she would sit and think of all the things that they might want to do to her. She's and she would test she dog. would test herself. <laughs> She'd go, Would I let them poo on me? Yes. <laughs> Would I let them wee on me? Yes. And she said she just sat there as a teenager asking these questions and every answer was, yes, I would. <laughs> so I quite like that we have the opposite to that fantasy, which is David Cassidy chivalrously saying, I will return to you when you're a woman of the correct age. Oh, I feel really lame now. <laughs> I want to be Sarah Pascoe. Do you know what, though? I think if I had gone to you age 13 and said, Emma, would you let him wee on you? I would have said no. Oh, you would You would have said no? Yeah, I wouldn't have understood it. Kiss me in a haystack for yes. seven minutes, absolutely fine. Totally, but, but I'm the not line up for the weeing. No, it's not okay. <laughs> what would be your biggest celebrity crush now? David Tennant. David Tennant? Yeah. Hmm. Can you just make sure he never hears this? <laughs> Why? Because I sort of know him a tiny bit now. And it would be really, really embarrassing. Does he have any idea that, that you be crushing on him? Yeah, completely, because I go bright pink every time I see him. You don't really have a type, do you? Don't I? David Cassidy, David Tennant? They're sort of clean cut. Yes, sort yes, actually, they slightly are. Slightly floppy haired boys, a bit Hugh Grantish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not Hugh. Hugh's just ridiculous. Never had a crush on him. I love him like a kind of brother, but he is... I mean, he'd be the first person to say he's ridiculous. He's completely ridiculous. Do you know what? Any feel, carnal feelings I had towards him, which I definitely did when I was younger and used to watch your films, 
disappeared the minute I heard his Desert Island Discs and he chose both the story of the Flopsy Bunny as one of his <laughs> tracks and and then the Fulham FC chant <laughs> anthem. And it just I was like, oh, all my feelings have disappeared. He's so fantastic, but he's not really a human being. Oh, really? Yeah, he's just he's just a kind of he's just a sort of glorious muddle of <laughs> of denial. I don't know what he is. I'm very fond of him, but I do not want to have sex with him at all. But David Tennant, yes, yes, he's the reason I haven't married Richard yet, really. Your second love story is a story of unrequited love, and we've already touched on him. Can you tell me a bit about you and your long history with David Cassidy? So he got me through my early youth um, just by being this beautiful creature on my bedroom wall. And for all the Generation Z and millennial listeners, David Cassidy was a huge pop star. He was the Harry Styles of his day. Yeah. He was absolutely beautiful. And he was an actor as well. He'd been in a TV show called The Partridge Family, where he was amazing. And then he released songs. And it was like Beatlemania, but the next generation, you know, people just screamed so loudly you couldn't hear a word of it. And he yeah. was, he completely captivated the generation. Um, and it's hard to explain because it was all so much more intense then because there was so much less of everything. Yes, yes. You know, there only were about 10 people in the, you know, and he was, so he sort of monopolised, you know, so the size of the audience was just massive. So I absolutely worshipped him. And, I and you know, that was a huge part of my childhood. He really, you know, I spent evenings making scrap albums with cutting things out of magazines and all of that. Never went to one of his shows. Um, <laughs> never earned his record. I love that you just basically didn't shit about the yeah. music. It was no, just, it was just him. him. He was just so pretty. Yeah. And he wore dungarees with teardrop colours and things. You know, he was just phenomenal. And then uh, when I met up with Richard and then I script edited Four Weddings and a Funeral, there was a line in it that I was just so proud of where Hugh Grant is t trying to convince Andy McDowell to go out with him. And he says to her, in the words of David Cassidy, after he'd left the Partridge family, I think I love you, which is one of David's big songs. Mm. And so that was, you know, that was like my world has come full circle. I'm now a woman and I'm now happily married, well, not happily unmarried, mm. and I have children of my own. But David Cassidy has now entered my workplace and that's just a lovely thing. So that was the end of that. Cut to two years later and the post arrives in the days when the post, you know, was interesting. And um, it wasn't just bills. And there's a letter to Richard and he opens it. And at the top, in embossed, on the top of the paper, it says David Cassidy. You must have just died. I, I, I mean, yeah. you know. And it said, uh, we have it framed in our loo, so <laughs> I do know it off by heart. But it said, I'm in town, I'm doing Blood Brothers in the West End. And I've just seen for the first time your film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I just wanted to thank you for having made a reference to me, especially because you did mention the fact that I did eventually leave the Partridge family, which to a lot of my fans is still news. And if you're ever in town oh, and around and fancy meeting up, you know, let's meet. So that was like the whole world had just worked. You know, one of the best moments of my whole life reading it. But what about Richard? Was Richard a David Cassidy fan? No. No. no he was like, oh, so this nice. is all for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he kind of put it in a drawer mark, you know, nice letters I once got or something yes. to read when I'm old. And I went, no, no, no. It said, if you ever want to meet, we do want to come on <laughs> right back. And he went, no, <laughs> just for me, just for the 13 year old girl that I once was. So he wrote back and he went, oh, do, OK, let's let's meet. And so we arranged to meet and we arranged to meet in this Italian restaurant just opposite our house which we chose because they knew our names in there because we went there about twice a week. So we thought that would be quite impressive. <laughs> and we arranged to meet and we walked in and he was there with his wife and we sat down and we had lunch with David Cassidy and it was just the best lunch, honestly, of my life. There will never, and nothing particularly dramatic happened, mm. but he was there, it was only the four of us and he talked about being David Cassidy. He talked about what it was like then, how he 
felt what the sort of the crash that came after his celebrity you know dwindle you know it was just everything you could have dreamed it would have been including this amazing story that he was doing a show at Wembley and he came and there was a party afterwards in his massive dressing room with like a hundred people and all the record company people and the PRs and the journalists and all that all there swanning around and he saw a girl across the room who he just thought looked amazing and she went off to the loo and he turned to his one of his people and he said clear the room and by the time she came out of the loo there was only one person standing in the room and it was David Cassidy. Oh my God. And they met and they had sex that night and it was fantastic and he thought she was really great. And that was it. It was just one night, but you know, it was romantic and just intense and incredible. And almost nearly an exact copy of the fantasy you told me about. Except that it gets better because he then went off and got married. She then went off and got married. She then got divorced. Her girlfriend said to her, we need to hook you up with someone else. Is there anyone from your past you ever really, really liked? And she said, well, I know it's crazy, but I did have this one night stand ridiculously with David Cassidy. He was absolutely great. She went, leave it with me. She got in touch with David Cassidy. They met and they married. And that was the girl we had lunch with. Oh, my God. So he really did go back. So this was like my whole life kind of making sense to me or something. Anyway, it was just phenomenal. And did it have like the same sort of when you saw him, did you have the same sort of physical... Did it feel like how you would look at his posters? Was there any sort of sense of that? A little no, bit? there no. wasn't. There was just all I kept thinking was just the little 13 year old girl. If she'd known yeah. that one day I was going to be going out with Richard with a two year old daughter sitting in an Italian restaurant having lunch with David Cassidy. I just wanted to say to her, it's all going to be so It's going to be beyond your wildest dreams fine. And at that moment, David said you know, we need to go, what's the rest of your day looking like? And I said, oh, we're having a little Christmas party this evening. And he said, what's happening? And I said, we've got about 40 people coming over to our house and some of the kids are coming and our two-year-old's going to be there. And uh, we've got this Father Christmas outfit so that we can do a Father Christmas, you know, someone will dress up in it and give out some presents to the little kids who are there. David, would you like to be Father Christmas? And David Cassidy said, yes. <laughs> so that evening, he came to our house. I squirreled him inside without anyone seeing. I took him up to my bedroom. I said, here's the Father Christmas outfit. Oh, my God. He started to take off his clothes to put it on. I didn't move. He had to ask me to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> Just forgot. He put on the Father Christmas outfit with a huge white beard and the big hat. So all you could see was his eyes went into the room. We had a little spiral staircase that came down into our sitting room and he came down it with a big bag of presents going ho, ho, ho. And he sat at the bottom and he gave out presents to the six kids who were there. And I didn't tell anybody who it was. And I went over to my girlfriend and I said, do you know who Father Christmas is? And she went, is it the caterer? (laughs) (laughs) And that was it and he left. And he didn't reveal himself? Oh my God. So that 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 was my Christmas... That was my Christmas present. That is the stuff of movie magic. I know, it's so Richard Curtis, it isn't is, it? It is, <laughs> it is. But you would watch it and think, oh, that would never happen. Yeah, and then it did. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And have you, did you see him again? No. No. Just and my life one... has never got better. Yeah. You know, that really was. That was better than the Oscars. As you've mentioned, you edit Richard's scripts yes and I heard on his Desert Island Discs he said the worst note that he could get from you was could do better well CDB is what he gets when he just hasn't tried hard enough on a scene (laughs) or a section or a line Um, if it's really really bad he gets see me which is what the nuns at the convent that I went to used to put on our homeworks were and you knew if you got see me you were going to get hit with a ruler so Simi's quite serious. Uh, but CDB, he gets a lot. Yeah, so I've I've script edited for him ever since we started going out together, which was ridiculous in the beginning because I've never script edited before and had no qualifications and really wasn't eligible for the job and turned it down when he first asked me. But what he said was that 
um, that everybody who edits a script brings an agenda to it. So if that's the film company, their agenda will be the film needs to make money or if it's someone who's involved in the casting, it will be we need to make this part work for an actress of certain calibre or, you know, everyone's got something they're bringing. And the only thing that I could bring to it, apart from just sort of common sense, was, or my sense anyway, was wanting the film to be exactly what Richard had, what we'd been discussing. Because every film that we do we probably talk about for one or two years before a single scene gets written. Right. You know, from embryo. Oh, would that would be funny, wouldn't it? Why do you, what, but hang on, what if we did, you know, so it's yeah. all of that going on. So having been so completely part of the, of, the, of the thought process that I know what he's trying to do, I know why he's trying to do it, and I know exactly what his intention is, and it's to make the best film that he can make on that particular subject in that particular way rather than to make as much money to make a great vehicle for a star yes to fill a market to do something different from other people none of that it's just the thing that we talked about let's make it happen yeah so that's my only agenda and weirdly that that works between us so the first one we did it on actually the first one we did it on was a show called Bernard and the Genie which was a tv film with Alan Cummings and Lenny Henry which was sweet and that was like I was cutting my teeth on that one and then the first movie we did it on was Four Weddings. And then I've done, he's never written a line now since without it coming via me and me tweaking it or changing it or working it through with him. So the film we're making at the moment, we start filming in a month, is, um, you know, I've pro- we've gone through about 20 drafts, I guess. Mm. And so every single draft I've been. And for the last few films he's done, I've co-produced them as well, just because right. I sort of do know the film world yeah. now. But I had to earn my stripes on that one. I get grumpy if he doesn't take my notes sometimes. Mm. And then sometimes he'll say, you were right, I should have done that. And sometimes I will say, you were right. I I was wrong to push you in that direction. Mm. You know, you were right not to do that. So we're kind of on equal pegging, I think. Mm. Um, He sometimes gets sulky when I give him a lot of notes Mm. on a scene. The film we're doing at the moment, I didn't like for a long time. And he used to get quite low about that. But it no, it's fine, actually. I mean, I, there's some people you can work with and some people you can't. Yeah. And some boyfriends you can work with and some you can't. And yeah. it's just always been fine with us. Yeah. And actually, I love it. Um, I mean, I would really miss it if we didn't have it just because we're so connected mm. on a work thing together. Mm. And, you know, when you make a movie, it's not something you leave behind at six o'clock. It really does it, it sort of affect all your life and your family life and your emotional life as well as your physical life. And if I wasn't part of that with him, I wouldn't mind. And similarly, he's very much part of my work. Is it strange to think that these films that you've made are so embedded in our kind of culture of love and romance, we almost have a shorthand for it. Like when you're sitting with a group of people and they say, oh, that moment in love actually with Emma Thompson in the bedroom, oh, and everyone immediately knows what you're talking about. Or I was with a group of people yesterday, it started raining and someone said it's raining and then someone else said I hadn't noticed. And things like, you know, I'm sure that there are people who now have horns that stand up in the congregation of their wedding. Is it trippy to think of what started with you and Richard probably just sitting having a cup of tea talking about stuff and words on a page has become so much a part of our culture of romance now? Well, I love this. I mean, that's all news to me. I love you saying that. It's so true, though. Yeah, that is a very trippy thought. I mean, that's that's an amazing idea if that really, you know, if the resonance really is like that. I don't really know what to make of that or do with that information, to be honest. I mean, we had a weird thing with Love Actually, which is that we hadn't seen it. We saw, I mean, we saw it 8,000 times while making it. You really, you have to watch the film so often that you literally want to puke on it by the time you actually open. That's why people who make films very, very rarely sit through the premiere because by that stage, you know, especially when you've done the grade and the dub, which are the last two parts of the process where you're watching the film sort of twice a day for about four months. By the time you get to the premiere, so the last time we'd seen it was at the premiere and we'd never seen it since. And then... Two years ago, we were living in New York 
And my daughter, Scarlett, said that they were having a midnight screening of Love Actually at a cinema right near our house. And um, at these midnight screenings, they take old movies and people, it's only ever fans who go. And they dress up as the characters and they take props and they Amazing. shout stuff at the screen and yeah. they answer back and they say lines along with the cast because they tend to be the real fan base who really know the film. So we thought, oh, this will be an amazing thing to see. So we went to the cinema at midnight and there were four people in the audience and two of them were asleep and the other two were <laughs> drunk. <laughs> so uh, there was no need not to tweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I tweeted throughout the film because it was actually fascinating yeah. watching it for the first time in how many years? I don't even know when it came out. You know, 15, 17 years. Or and as a like punter, that. yeah. Yeah, and as a punter with people literally snoring on the seat behind yeah. us. <laughs> but remembering for the first time all the little bits, remembering like the fact that when Colin Firth kisses Lucia Meniz, the waitress in the Portuguese restaurant, um, Richard had asked me to be the kissing consultant for the film, particularly for that moment, because he really needed that kiss to be amazing. Yeah. And... Um, and so I desire, so, I mean, can you imagine? Dolly, literally, can you imagine someone saying, will you be the kissing consultant? Honestly, it was seven minutes of heaven <laughs> finally paying off. It's like, I know how to do this. I've been practicing for this role for a lifetime. Literally yeah. a lifetime. Yeah. And I'm really good at it. <laughs> so Colin and I had a lot of chats about how he was going to kiss. Horribly sexist. I didn't have that many with Lucia. I had a few, but it was really, it was more Colin kissing her than yeah. her. Anyway, whatever. Um, but we designed a, a kiss with my signature move in it. What's the signature move? Well, do you want me to show you? Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. He's coming round to snog me. <laughs> okay, so you're Lucia. Yeah. And I'm Colin. Yeah. And firstly, it's a bit sort of cheesy now. But I'm going to take your head in my hands. That's like a that. good move. Yeah, but it's actually tactical. I'm doing this because I need my thumb to be near your lips because I'm going to move in like this and just and I'm staring at your lips. That's quite important. Mm -hmm. I love that. And just before I kiss you, I'm going to brush your lower lip with my thumb and then move in like that. Do you know, that is the closest thing I've had to a kiss in about nine <laughs> months and I feel very <laughs> flustered. And do you know what? What? It really works. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a good kiss. And does he do that in the movie? Exactly. Oh, I'm going to look out for Literally, the thumb lip brush. Exactly. Yeah. I was very pleased with that. Uh, so anyway, so I was in the cinema tweeting away going, oh, it's the, the kiss that I designed. And oh, there's that <laughs> the moment. The kiss that I designed. <laughs> when we put a sock on Martin Freeman's willy when he was being the naked guy and it fell off, you know, all of this. So just the sort of stupid behind the scenes stuff. Um, and I woke up the next morning. It was the first and last time in my whole life I'd gone a little tiny bit viral. Oh, I remember that. Because the Daily Mail picked up on yeah. it, didn't they? Yeah. And it was Emma Freud reveals the secrets of making yeah. love, actually. It was weird. But the fact that it was it was then printed as, you know, as much as it was, was like, oh, hello. There's, you know, there's a, there's a the attraction here that we hadn't realised. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everyone as well has their favourite scenes and their favourite lines from your films that they can kind of quote verbatim. Like what? Mine is, I'm just a girl <laughs> standing in front of a boy Aww. asking him to love her. And I remember listening to Richard do a BAFTA talk where he was talking about the nature of script writing and he said, um, and I use this trick all the time now in my scripts. He said the reason he he wrote that speech for Julia Roberts is that it's very good in a film to have someone say what the film is all about. Mm. It, it kind of anchors everyone together into the heart of what the film is. In that moment, what she's saying is, I may be the most beautiful and successful and famous woman in the world, but here's the here's the like human in me here's like the vulnerability in me which is what the whole film is about isn't it how, how that transcends it is completely about that well actually the whole film was meant to be about Richard always had a fantasy of turning up at Piers and Paula's house we're back with them now um, with a date because he had very bad luck with girls all through his 20s Did he? yeah and then he went out with Helen Fielding and that was very that was lovely but other than that he, he only had you know four or five girlfriends I think properly. 
So he was always going to Piers and Paula's without someone. And he just had this fantasy of walking into Piers and Paula's one Friday night for dinner with, you know, eight friends with Madonna. <laughs> and just seeing, and not having worn them and just seeing their face. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're on a date. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was actually the germ for that particular movie. Um, but yes, it is absolutely about vulnerability. And it's funny, whenever I hear that line, what I instantly go to is when we were filming that day, Julia was very, very specific about what she was wearing and she wasn't happy with the outfit that the costume designer had got for her. And she really wanted it to be a certain... She just had in her head. She knew that that was going to be the, yeah. the film-defining moment. Yeah. And she needed the clothes to be in harmony with that. Yeah. And I remember exactly what she was wearing. Do you? She's wearing a cardigan that's yes. kind of ombre Yes. Kind of dip-dyed. Yeah, and a kind of blue A-line yeah. skirt that's not very snazzy at all, which because, was hers. Yeah, because she looks like just an ordinary girl in that moment. But the thing that I really remember about it was that she did, she refused to wear the shoes that the costume designer had suggested, and she wore her own flip-flops. Mm. And there's something so vulnerable yeah. about a flip-flop. Your foot is so <laughs> entirely exposed. Yeah. To you know, And walking up the Portobello Road in flip-flops, because his little cafe, was no, his little travel bookshop was on the Portobello Road, in flip-flops is, you know, it was just... That to me, that's that. Those feet were the embodiment of what she was talking yes. about. Yes. Yeah. Just a girl. Just a girl. Yeah, that's my favorite. And my other favorite is um, Emma Thompson in the Tall Guy. Um, you saw the Tall Guy. It's one of my faves. Is it? Yeah. I tried to make my kids watch it the other day. They weren't having any of it. They said, no. "Oh, we've heard about this film. It's shit." <laughs> no, I love. Well, it's it's not in keeping with the style of Richard Curtis films that we know so well. It's kind of slapstick, and but it's fucking Jeff Goldblum, Emma Thompson being her most exquisite, and it's set in my neck of the woods. Oh, it is. So I just love watching it for all. It was originally all the... called Camden Town Boy. Was it? Mm. But there's this great scene in it, which is my favourite sex scene of all time. Oh, it's good the sex scene. Yeah, isn't where it? they're uh, Jeff Goldblum and Emma Thompson are going at it. And it kind of escalates, so it becomes kind of really silly. But but the kernel of it is so true about what normal people having sex look like, which is that it's a bit messy and it's a bit clumsy. And there's this bit where Emma Thompson's unbelievably delicious bottom rolls over on a slice of toast and then it sticks to her bum, which I've always wanted to reference if I ever did a sex scene. I'd love to have someone have some toast on their arse. Because <laughs> toast on your arse... Is much more likely to happen in sex than all the sex that we see. Yes, that's so true. Your third and fourth love story are combined as the same person. Yes. Which, if this was Sue Lawley on Desert Island Dish, she, she would be would happy. not allowed, but I'm much more of the Kirsty Young relaxed school of. <laughs> presenting so I will allow it so you're both your passionate love and your everlasting love is of course is my boy is your boy well yeah I would I'd love to say I'd love to I'd it would be fun if there were some other names in the fray here but it's been a long time there's just there's no chance I've seen Richard put up with so much shit in his life in so many different places and never bail on it and I kind of know, he always used to say, if if there was an unfortunate frying pan accident mm. and a burning hot cast iron pan went straight into your face, mm. I probably would leave you then. But other than that, <laughs> I'm here for the duration. And he is, you know, his sister was very sick and he was the greatest brother ever. Comic relief that both of us you know, a, a part of, he began it, and I'm director of Red Nose Day. Yeah. Um, he is is an amazing organisation, but it's just hard, 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 relentless, difficult, hard and hard. And I quite often go, can we not do it anymore? And he goes, <laughs> nope, not an option. He He's not a quitter. He's yeah. got his dad's values, and his dad was real old school work ethic. I think it's probably one of the things that attracted me to him, um, whereas I come from a family of quite flaky chances. Mm. Um, mm. His his roots were in grafting, mm. and he you know if he if he hasn't left comic relief, uh, he's not going to leave me. 
And also there's something that I have found as I've got older about grafters. I think they're really sexy. I know. They're hot grafters. Because they've got integrity. Yeah, exactly. They really do. And it was the first thing that attracted me to him. I mean, Mm. I sort of fell in love with Richard the first time we ever met, which was um, over the phone. I was doing a radio show for the BBC and he was organising the first ever Red Nose Day. And I interviewed him for three minutes. He was in his office in in TV Centre and I was uh, in Marylebone at the BBC there. And so we, I never saw him. I just heard this voice for three minutes and I said, oh, you know, coming up this weekend is the first ever Red Nose Day. Producer is Richard Curtis. You know, what's it about? You know, isn't it a bit weird to have comedy and relief in the same sentence? It's a bit odd, isn't it? And all that. And he chatted away for three minutes. And at the end of it, I wrote him a thank you letter for having done the interview, which mm. is something I did twice in my entire career. But one of those letters went to him for a three-minute, completely nothing little chat. But something about it, something in my head just went, for someone as who's written Blackadder, not that I'd ever seen it, and I still haven't seen it, to be honest, but I knew it was meant to be really funny. Mm. So for someone who can be that funny to also be giving that much of his life to uh, trying to look after people who, or trying to support people who are living in poverty, that that is a sexy mixture. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that little pregnant pause. It <laughs> was nice, wasn't it? It was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice coming from you, actually, as a professional broadcaster. And you mentioned that you... Did you sort of court him for two years? You mentioned that it was a slow burner. I didn't exactly court him. But I think from very, but I then, yes, I sort of did court him, I suppose. Mm. Um, he he was then um, meant to be on a radio show that I'd still do on Radio 4 Loose Ends, um, where I'm only on once a month. And I saw on the board that he was coming in on a week that I wasn't in. And I asked the producer if I could do it that week. And he said no. So I rang him the next day and said, can I, can I do that, the Richard Curtis programme? And he went no. And I rang him every day for about two weeks. It's until borderline stalking. Sort yeah. of, I suppose. So then I actually met him. And that was thrilling. And then we became friends. And But I think I knew quite early on that he was the man I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Really? Mm. Did it take him a little longer to get there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think we need to tell these stories more because I think we think of love stories as always being those two people, that moment being in tandem. But I don't think that's correct in a lot of great relationships. And one of my very close friends said that she, when she first, they're married now, her and her husband, but she said when they were dating, he was just being flaky and she said it was really difficult because I knew that I was the right woman for him and I knew that we were going to get married and have a family but it just I had to be patient because it just took him a while to get there well it's exactly the same thing when I proposed to him Mm. I mean we'd been together for a year it'd been the greatest every minute of it had been better than I'd ever dreamed a relationship could be yeah and you can't feel that I believe you can't feel that unless you're really psycho yeah Totally. If the other person isn't feeling it as well, it has to be a sort of chemical reaction between the two of you. Definitely. And so I absolutely knew. I knew before we ever kissed, but from the second that we were going out together, you know, it was just so blatantly obvious. Um, And it, yeah. And so when he said, can I have a year to think about it? And it was like, you can't have a second to think about Mm. it. You must be, what are you talking? This is insane. So, yeah, it definitely took him longer, which is crazy. Because it's been 28 years. Yeah, yeah. And we're really happy. So I don't know what he was thinking. And four children later. Yeah. And so what's the age ranges of your kids now? Eldest is 22, the youngest is 14. And did you always know that you wanted a big family? No, not at all. I didn't know I wanted any family, actually. I only got pregnant um, because my best friend was pregnant. And we always said we were going to do it together. And she rang and said, I'm pregnant. And so... Hop to it. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't ready at all. And I didn't know how I was ever going to be ready because I really loved being just the two of us. But I did. And then after her, I said, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to do it again. And then by mistake, got pregnant with, with my boy. And then after that, said never, ever, ever again. And then, you know, third and then never and then fourth. I don't I it's weird I don't quite understand what goes on there I think there's a lot of hormones mm. going around and I think the hormones are primarily there to tell you that you need more children because mm. then 10 years later you go why do we have four because four is a bit very big family it's huge yeah it's huge and I was 
when I was researching you, I thought, oh, I bet Emma comes from a really massive family. Which yeah. You, well, you don't really, though. You've only got two siblings, haven't you? Five. Oh, you've got five siblings. Yeah. Well, my research was pretty... Yeah, really lame. Shocking. <laughs> because, well, that confirms my theory then. Yeah. Every single person I've ever met who has lots of siblings ends up having loads of children. And Rich is one of four as well. It always happens. You never meet someone from a big family who just has one or two kids. Even though, if you asked any of my children... They would all say, I wish I was an only child. I just think they'll all end up with their own broods because you have an understanding of what it is to be a gang in a way that I'll never understand. Are you an only child? No, there's just two of us and I love him dearly, but there's something about, and it's not even three, it's four or more. It gives it's a you, gang. It's a gang. It gives you a collective identity that I think gives you a confidence in the world. Really? Well, that's my theory just from the outside looking in. Maybe that's incorrect. It's funny, I often look at my brother, Matthew, um, the stupid one, um, <laughs> and my youngest boy, Spike, mm. and think they're both almost entirely defined by being the youngest. Mm. You know, everything I see in Matthew's achievements, and this is only probably because I'm his elder sister, but is all about being the youngest, searching for the place that he can occupy some space, trying really hard to make a stamp and make a st and, and and I often feel if he had been an only child his or you know the oldest or the middle he would have had a totally different career and I feel the same about Spike who to me seems to be the kid just searching from his sister and two brothers uh, for a, a little room that he can call his own yes. for a place that he can be an individual rather than a lesser version of of the rest of them and that's what I at the moment but I'm a mother of for teenagers as it were that's what I see the idea that they would at some point see themselves as understanding collective identity is thrilling to me so mm -hmm. I like hearing you say that <laughs> well maybe it's something that you're not even conscious of but but as someone who's not in that gang I, I've seen it with all my friends that are maybe you're always aware that you're part of a bigger story that, yeah. and that you're only a part you can never be the big story yeah yeah something like that don't know so how old were you when you had Scarlett? Your, that's your first child. 34. 34. So if you could go back now yeah. to 34-year-old Emma holding that baby for the first time, if you could say one thing to her, what would you say? <gasps> Jeez. Oh, that's too big a question to throw at me. What would I say to Emma? What would, would you say about parenting? Was there anything you'd say just by the way? Okay, well, I, one thing I would say is that 22 years later, none of my children are dead. And that is, you know, I haven't killed any. And I think <laughs> I've been no frying pan in so <laughs> frightened that I just never believed that I was the one who was responsible for whole human beings. Yeah. And, you know, I once left Scarly in a shop. You know, and and I think the fear of being of actually being in charge and then messing up to the point that they end up, you know, lost or kidnapped or under a car or I forgot to give them the vaccination and they yeah. died of the thing that I should have prevented. You know, I think that was a big fear. So I would probably calm myself down about that. I would. Oh, Lord. I so many things. I mean, Honestly, I've made every mistake in the book and still continue to do so. I had to have a little lecture this morning from Scarlett before I left about about the way that I'm, you know, parenting the younger ones. And she was saying, you've got to stop doing that. Uh, I would, I, oh, fuck. What would I say? I would say, calm down a bit. Yeah. Stop worrying so much. It'll all be all right. And you'll never know if the bits of them that are working well are the, because of all the worry and the effort you put in or if it would all have been so much better if you'd had a bit more wine mm. and just chilled out mm. and let them do it on their own. I don't know. It's That's one of my biggest fears about if I ever have children. I sometimes think about my mum and dad and the fact that they know that me and my brother are just like on the loose in London. And I'm like, I just don't know how you guys ever fucking sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Neither do I. I don't know how they don't stay up all night thinking about it. Oh, it's such a huge question, that, Dolly. I know it's like one of those questions, and I've asked people that question in the past. But actually, if you're going to take it seriously, 
you know, it's really the stuff of, of biography, isn't it? Mm, you write an mm. entire book trying to work out the answer to that question. I had, you know, Scarlett, my first child, got very, very sick when mm. she was 14. And she basically spent five years in pain, um, two and a half of them in a wheelchair, in her bedroom. She never really went back to school. And she, she, she went through absolute hell. And it's kind of the worst thing for a mum. I mean, the worst thing that, not the worst, she didn't die. And, uh, you know, she's doing okay now. But for those five years, when I kind of went to bed quite often, not knowing if she'd be alive in the morning, mm. and watching my beautiful 14-year-old become desperately sick for a very long time, um, it's kind of the worst thing that you can imagine. And the fact that we've both of us survived it changes a lot for me. It changes it changes a lot of the parenting game. You know, when you've looked that one in the eye and then come out the other side, it it it's you know, I feel damaged by it and I feel um I feel diminished by it and I in some weird way I feel slightly empowered by it yeah. because because I'm still here. Yeah. And so is she. Yeah. So it's a really complicated thing, but I know that's changed my game and I would probably have a big chat with me at 34 about those five years. Mm. Because when you're going through it, you don't know it's five years. Of course. You think it's possibly 50 years yeah. and it's possibly just till tomorrow. Yeah. And living with that uncertainty is, is hard. Finally, Emma, I want to say, I think the overriding thing that connects you and your life and all your work and please tell me if you think that this is wrong. But I think with your, with the comic relief stuff, with the films you've made, with the, even the articles that you write, I think it's all about finding the joy in something. That's what I, that's what I see as like the kind of overriding theme of who you are and what your work is. And somehow managing to, con to capture a feeling of kind of everyday contentment. And I wanted to know, aged 55, are you now? 56. 56. Have you found any secret for contentment? Or is there something that you would say to people, if you do that, you get much closer to contentment? You're very good, Dolly. <laughs> what an interesting question. Well, I really love that that's what you think the theme of all the various things that I do is. And um, I've never thought of that before it's not what I'm it's not a sort of conscious decision to do that but I think you might be right I think that is what I'm always looking for and mm. that's and that's uh it probably is the theme yeah that's that's not a bad theme is it as themes it's a go wonderful theme okay I'm very pleased with that thank you um I have to say in answering that question that I am ridiculously privileged in that the films that we do um, result in royalties, which means that Richard and I are both able to give nine months of every year, pretty much, to Comic Relief or the Global Goals stuff yeah. that we do yeah. um, with the UN. Um, and it also means that anything to do with joy is in the context of the fact that we get royalty checks. So I'm not apologising for that. I'm just saying that I'm completely aware of how fortunate and that makes me and how the privilege that that gives me in terms of being able to look for the joy yeah. because if it wasn't for the royalty checks then I would be looking for the electricity bill yes but the electricity bill is taken care of yeah so that's banked and I, it's not something I'm not aware of yeah every single day of my yeah. life yeah um in terms of finding the joy, well, you know, About Time was as much of an exploration of that subject as we were able, as I, I am able to put into, you know, that was the best version mm. of that argument mm. of how you find the joy mm. um, and why you find the joy and where the joy actually lies as opposed to the places that you think the joy might lie. So About Time would be my definitive statement on that. But in the sort of day-to-day -day practicalities of things, for me, it's very often, and don't forget the electricity bill thing here, yeah. but it's very often about doing less. Right. And in a world where it's all about more, yeah. 
the less I do, the happier I am. Yeah. Because the less I do, what what I don't do is watch daytime TV. And actually, I don't think many people, given the opportunity to do less, do end up watching daytime TV. But when I do less, watch less, engage in my phone less, work less, um, or I'm cleverer about the work so that I can work less, what I fill that time with is my kids, my animals, um, a book. <laughs> That's a lie. I never read books. Um, but it would be a book mm. if I was a different person. Um, <laughs> you know, being in nature, uh, being fit. I mean, I think being fit is huge. My mum is 91 and swims every single morning for half an hour and goes tap dancing every single Monday evening for two oh, yeah. hours. And because of that has, and is incredibly lucky as well, but because of that, she does not have... Um, physical pain. So at 91, she's still active, buzzy, does a crossword every day. Really funny, really interesting, really vibrant. Mm. So if you do less, you're able to make sure that you're not completely messed up by bad health. Because that's the first thing to go off the yeah. list, isn't it? When and you're too busy. Completely. And also, you know, having had that five years where there only was Scarlett's health, that was the only thing, you know, that was the biggest problem from the minute we woke up to the minute we went to sleep. And for her as well, if you don't have health, there isn't anything else. Yeah. You can't have a conversation about joy. You can't have a conversation about anything yes. if actually what you're trying to do is not die. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, that's a privilege that that you, 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 you do don't take lightly. Emma Freud, thank you so much for telling me your love stories. Oh, well, my next love story is going to be all about you because I'm in love with you. <laughs> thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. Love Stories.